broken relationships. Father, would you draw us back in by the beauty of your grace? Would you stand glorified at the end of this message, God? We love you. We praise you and thank you. And it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, church, it's good to see you guys again this morning. Uh, if this is your first time or first time in a long time, uh, we started a new series a couple months ago on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. We're going to be continuing in that series this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to pick things up starting in verse 21 and kind of going through verse 26. Uh, this past week, as I was kind of studying a, a few things, I came across this article, piqued my interest on the greatest SNL characters of all time. Uh, do we have any... I, I don't know why I get easily distracted like that, but um, any other SNL fans here? And you can admit to it, I'm not going to shame you or anything, but I, I think it was absolutely better way back in the day. Uh, so, I mean, that's what this article is about. It was about some of the greatest characters of all time that aren't around today anymore, but I uh, had a great top five list. I'm going to share some of these things with you. Um, one of them was Buckwheat. We remember Buckwheat and Alex Trebek, uh, the two that I love Buckwheat. Wook and Penub and all the Wong Poi. Anyway. Anybody remember that? Come on, people. Um, yeah, great skits right there. I mean, just uh, pretty incredible. I'm not going to quote Alex Trebek at all. And um, uh, number three, we had a Wayne Campbell. Remember this next one right here? Wayne Campbell and the church lady, right? Some pretty great ones right there. And then, of course, we had to round out the top five. We had, yes, we had Matt Foley right there. Just one of the greatest. Okay, anybody want to guess who number one was on the greatest character of all time? Okay, we're, who thinks it's Buckwheat? Okay, nobody thought Buckwheat. I love Buckwheat. Anyway, um, who thought Alex Trebek? Anybody going to, okay, we've got a few Alex Trebekers. We, anybody thinking Wayne Campbell? we got a handful of those in the first hour. What about Church Lady? I think everybody was assuming I'm using Church Lady for the example this morning or something. No, not, not going there. Number, it was Matt Foley, right? It was absolutely Matt Foley. Uh, I love that character. I was looking through that list, and um, there were some good ones up there. One of my favorite ones was, came in around 63 so evidently I was the only one that enjoyed this one a little bit, but um, it's Penelope, the one-upper, one up, Kristen Wiig's character. You know what I'm talking about there? Like she's that friend of yours that'll go into whatever you're celebrating that day. It could be your birthday, happy birthday, hooray, all these different kinds of things. She's going to be like, oh, today's your birthday. That's wonderful, fantastic. You know, I had a birthday too. I'm a little bit older than you, so it looks like I had the birthday first, so it looks like I'm a little bit better than you were today. You know, she's going to give you a little smirk and stuff. And she's like, there's another one here from a taken from a little screenshot. But uh, world's greatest or world's greatest chef. And that's universe's greatest des, des, des chef. Anyway, I, th I think she's hilarious. And so she's the one up. Like, doesn't matter what you say or do. Like, you're going to be coming in there. She's going to just take whatever you're, you're excited about that day. And she's going to one up it and just kind of make you be in this place where you're kind of going, I, I, I don't even have anything to be excited about. Um, the reason I'm saying that is because, like, the passage we're going to look at today is going to feel a bit like that. Okay? It's going to feel kind of a, a tiny, tiny bit like that. And so if you remember from this past week, uh, we, we've been talking about uh, Jesus is preaching this mixed crowd of kind of social outcasts. And then part of the crowd is these religious elitists. And he's speaking to the religious elitists. And he's saying this thing. He's saying, okay, I see your religious works. And I see these great things. And, and all of those different things are fantastic. But here it is. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and uh, the teachers of the law, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, I see the great works that you're doing, and that's fantastic, but here it is, bro. Like, unless you, your righteousness exceeds that of every other human being that's ever lived, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so you're kind of left in this place of kind of going, oh, wow. That's kind of actually more Debbie Downer a little bit, if you will. Um, and so you're kind of left in this place of kind of going, okay, where do I go from here? Now, the good news of what Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is that he's also said in the exact same breath, okay, I didn't come to abolish the law. Everybody's wondering, what are you going to say about the law? What do we do with this whole thing? He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I did come to fulfill it. Meaning that everything that the law required of us, perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect thoughts, all the time, always blood is a repayment for sin. Jesus came to fulfill them for us as a substitute for you and for me for as long as we all shall live. Now, the good news of that is that as he continues out through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, what this means is that you and I, as he continues to go through this thing and he continues to raise the bar of holiness and he, he continues to raise the moral standard all over the place and he lifts this up and he says to you and me, be holy as you, as I am holy. As he continues to, to give us this admonition, he allows us to pursue holiness from a place of victory. Since he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. 
And so the question I want to look at as we, as we kind of wrap up a little bit the end of uh, chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount is what does it look like for you and me to pursue holiness as Christ is holy? I mean, that's the thing. Everywhere he's looking, he is lifting up the beauty of the law. It's a good thing. He's got affection for the law. So what in the world does it look like for you and I to also lift up the bar of holiness and pursue holiness from a place of victory? So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick it up in verse 20 and we're going to go through verse 26. Uh, from here to the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to be giving us six different examples of kind of typically where we drop the ball when it comes to holiness. Again, these are going to be typical matters that we think we're doing pretty well in, and Jesus is going to come and one-up them a little bit and be like, hey, you're not quite as good as you think that you are, and there's going to be a hope that's there in the middle of that thing. And so all I want to do this morning is I want to show us a little bit of big picture what he's saying here as he wraps up chapter 5 and then how one of these examples fits into that big picture message. So verse 20 again, he's going to say this, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said that it was said, to, you've heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment too. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Rakah, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fires of hell. Now that's pretty extreme language, right? I mean, you're kind of reading this, you're going, that is pretty, pretty intense stuff. In danger of the fires of hell, in danger of judgment for being angry and things of that nature. Church, again, as you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, like why is this not crushing to us, especially those of us on the, being on the other side of the new, the new covenant. The reason it's not crushing is because he's just said that I came to fulfill the requirements of the law for you. That's why, again, like, like this is, so, so you may be in danger of the fires of hell. However, if you are in Christ, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, victory has been won because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the picture that he's painting for us. There's a really, really high bar of holiness. However, Christ came to fulfill those requirements for us so that we can pursue that holiness uh, from a place of victory. Nevertheless, every step along the way, he is raising the bar of holiness and he's raising the bar of how we think about pursuing holiness in our own life. I mean, that's exactly what he's saying right here. Uh, he's saying, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. And he's raising this thing and he's saying, uh, it's not just the things that you do. It's, 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 it's about what's going on inside of your heart. It's not just the, the things that you're doing over there. It's the way that you're thinking about those things. It's the motivations that are inside of your heart. It's why you're doing certain things uh, over there. I mean, take a look at the pattern that's going to be playing out in this text. He's going to say in verse 21, you've heard it said this way about the law, but I say to you in verse 22, this. In other words, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but I'm telling you, don't even get angry with other people. Don't, like, don't even think about those things. Don't even hate other people. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, and I'm telling you, don't even think about adultery. Don't even entertain the lust in your heart. You've heard it said this about divorce and oaths and revenge and love, but I'm telling you these things over here. But church, every single time, he is raising the bar of holiness, and he's saying that holiness is not just something that you do. It, it, it begins in the quiet recesses of your heart. That's what it is. Like holiness is not just out there and the things that you can see and do, but, but holiness is beginning right there in the quiet recesses of your heart. And it's exactly the thing that the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, like they didn't believe that at that point in time. They actually thought, and they actually patted themselves on the back a little bit because they hadn't actually murdered anybody at that point in time. Which by the way, it's still a very common moral ethic today. I mean, you talk to people today, kind of, hey, do you feel like you're pretty, pretty good? I mean, how do you define good and all these different kinds of things? And you're going to hear very, very similar responses. Well, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. It's not like I've ever killed anybody, right? I've, I've, it's not like I've ever been to prison, right? And that kind of the standard. Like, we still kind of judge ourselves in that way a, a tiny, tiny bit. And Jesus is going to go going, fantastic, way to go. You haven't murdered anybody. Uh, you've, you've kept the letter of the law pretty well, kind of. If we're actually being honest about that, you probably failed at that miserably too. But like, you've kept the letter of the law pretty well, but, but you've completely abolished and, and just completely missed the spirit of the law. It's why Jesus is going to say this in Matthew 23. He's going to say, woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside you appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Church, like that's where hypocrisy comes from. It's men and women who cling to an outward moral code while paying no attention to what's really going on inside of your heart. 
It's why I've told you this a number of times, but it's why whenever I do a ton of premarital counseling with different people around here, like I'm, my biggest concern is not about whether or not you're sleeping together. Like my biggest concern when we're meeting and talking about marriage is not about whether or not you're sleeping together, although that is a big concern. Like the thing that I care about is number one, do you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that would lead you to uh, pursue sexual purity in your relationship in and of itself? Like is that relationship even there? Does that foundation even exist? Is there even a platform by which you may hold on to a sexual ethic that does not make sense to you in your own flesh? Uh, Number two is if the answer is yes, you do have that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you continue to go on into, into sexual impurity and things of that nature is why does the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ not hold much weight in your life? Like, I want to know what's going on behind the scenes. Like, I want to know, like, beyond just the, the, the extra things that you're doing and, and the different moral things, the different ways that it comes out. Like, I want to know about what's going on inside of your heart, church. Like, I could care less about shaming people into obedience. Like, I, I could care less about keeping people, uh, about, about, about having you enforce some sort of a moral code here when your heart is not following along the way. Like, I care less about sexual purity if your heart is not actually there. The thing that I care about is like, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength? Is that foundation of holiness, is it living inside of your life in such a way that it's going to come out in everything that you do? Like, are you thinking about the world differently because of what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ? Are your relationships different? The way that you love your spouse, love your neighbor, love your enemy, are all of those things different because of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Is he producing these things inside of your life as a result of your relationship with him? Church, what he's saying is that the heart matters. It's not just what's happening out there. Like the heart actually matters in the entire thing. Jesus is going to say, Luke chapter 6, verse 44, that a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, but an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In other words, church, like you want to know what's actually taking place in your heart, then pay attention to the words that you say. Like you want, to have, you want to do a diagnostic on your heart and what's happening inside here. Like what are the words that you're saying to other people? How do you speak to your spouse? How do you speak to your children, your coworkers, your bosses, the people underneath you? The waiter at, at Luby's afterwards, which they don't do waiters or anything, but like the people that are serving you jello, right? Like, like how do you treat people and how do you talk to them? I mean, church, listen to me, like even this side of the new covenant, right? Even this side of the new covenant, the new heart that that, that has been gifted to you by the Holy Spirit, like positionally you and I have been sanctified, meaning you've been set apart and designated as holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something that's actually true. It's what Christ has given to us because he alone is actually holy. Positionally, you've been sanctified and called holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But present tense, every single day, we still surrender to the Holy Spirit every single day. We still come to him in prayer. We confess our sins to one another. We live in community with one another. We meditate on God's word. We graciously give tithes and offerings. We passionately sing. We go to extreme measures to feed our heart well because as we do, the Holy Spirit is present tense, sanctifying us, making us more and more holy every single day as we surrender to him. So again, church, this side of the new covenant, I mean, like what do the words of your mouth reveal about what's actually taking place in your heart? I mean, that's the question that's on the table. Like, what is it actually saying about what's true inside of your soul? I mean, let me put it another way like this. Like, if you were having an autobiography written about your life, and the only words in this book were a transcript of everything that you've said in the past month alone, would it even be a Christian book? I mean, the reality is, church, like, if you're mad all the time and, and you're always snapping at the people that you love at home, like, there might be something going on inside that you need to pay attention to. And the reality is, church, like, if you're quicker to rip people apart and to put them in their place, and you're quicker with the snarky comments than you are to build someone up and to tell them you love them and to encourage them and to speak life into other people, like, there may be something going on deep inside your heart that you need to pay attention to. And and, and here it is, like, if your political convictions are stronger than your religious ones, than your biblical convictions, like, there may be something going on inside your soul that you need to be paying attention to. 
I mean, if, if, if your passion for the Cowboys, if your evangelical fervor for football and things of that nature is stronger than your evangelical fervor for the gospel of Jesus Christ, like there may be something that you need to be paying attention to deep inside your soul. And so Jesus says, don't just look at the things that you're doing. Like, I, like I'm so pumped you haven't killed anybody yet. Like, that's wonderful. But check your heart. Check your heart. Check your heart. Do the hard work of introspection and figuring out, like, what's really going on deep inside my soul? Because holiness isn't just beginning out there. Holiness is beginning deep inside here long before you ever thought to pay attention to it. And so I want to get to this first example. He continues on here. And uh, the first example is going to have a lot to do with the things that you say, which are going to be revealing the realities of si inside of your heart. Again, he says, you've heard it said a long time ago, don't murder. Anyone who murders will be brought to judgment. I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, rakah, is, answered to, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of hell. Anyone ever said rakah to anybody? <laughs> so trans I think we're pretty good. We're all holy, right? Uh, it's a transliteration of, a, of an Aramaic word, and um, we got to know kind of what's going on here, right? This is, clearly he's not talking about just being angry, right? Uh, right? The, the, Paul's going to say this in Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to say there's a way to be angry and still not sin. Jesus is going to have a righteous anger. He's going to go into the temple. He's going to clear out the, the temple tables and all the, uh, the, the, the horrible things that are taking place in there. And so we were, we're not talking about that. Uh, recall is a word that literally means uh, imbecile, numbskull, blockhead or fool. Literally, that's what it means. It's a, it's a word that means imbecile, numbskull, blockhead, or fool. And so he's not just talking about feeling angry about someone or something. He's talking about anyone who's willing to give in to their anger in such a way uh, that, it, that words come out and end up tearing someone else apart. And so what he's talking about here is just that it's not just physical abuse that's a problem in your marriage. It's verbal and emotional abuse too. Like, it's the person who may not be throwing a punch, but, like, they know how to kill you with their words. It's the student or neighbor who may not have the courage to say something to your face, but they know how to go online, and they know how to post about you, and they know how to gossip about you behind your back. And what Jesus is saying is that, is that I'm glad that you haven't murdered someone, but you're guilty, too. Right? Like, like, it's not just the murderers, and I'm glad you haven't gone that far, but, but holiness goes all the way back to your heart, and, and your words still have the power to kill the people you're called to love. And so he continues, and he says, here's what I want you to do about this, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister is something against you, then leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gifts. It's a pretty dramatic response, isn't it? And you're going to catch this theme that Jesus is into dramatic responses in order to avoid these things and to pursue holiness in your life. It's actually okay to set up boundaries. It's actually okay. It's not a legalistic measure to say, I'm going to be wise about something over here, and I'm going to take holiness this seriously, that I'm going to actually go really, really far to obey this kind of a thing over here. He's into dramatic responses in order to pursue holiness. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, you traveled a long time to get to the temple to worship that day. Like, that's what it is. This is back in the day, there weren't temples at every corner like we have them today. You get in a car, and you're here at the church in 30 seconds. Right, like temples, like if you're going to the temple to worship, you're traveling a long time to get to the worship, to, to go to worship that day. You're probably bringing a sacrifice with you, some sort of an offering. And so what he's saying is, is once you get there, you, you, you took your whole day to go do this. You walk to the temple, you bring that whole thing. If you get to that point and you're at the temple, at the altar, and you happen to remember that someone else has something against you, what I want you to do is to leave what you're doing right there. Like, I don't even care about the offering at that point in time. There's something more important going on than the offering that you're bringing right there. What I want you to do is to leave that and go find that person who has something against you and be reconciled with them. It's dramatic. It's dramatic. That's how important it is to Jesus. And he's going to say the same thing in verse 25. He's going to say, settle matters quickly while your adversary who is taking you with your adversary who is taking you to court. In other words, both of these examples that he's giving to you are, are going to be examples where someone else has something against you, right? This is the person, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm offering my, my, my offering right here and that person has something against me. I've done something to offend them. 
Or I'm going to court, and, and, and before I get to court, uh, I, I, this person is taking me to court. So these are both matters where I've done something to offend them. And he's going to say, settle it quickly. Do it while you're on the road together, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penalty. In other words, do whatever it takes to settle matters quickly. That's what he's saying. Do whatever it takes, like, like long before it ever gets to court, go and take care of matters. Long before, even, even higher priority than making your offering at church is to go and be reconciled with the people you love. Don't avoid it and don't pretend that it doesn't exist. Don't run from it. Don't refuse to, not, don't refuse to talk about it. Right, don't assume that time is going to heal all wounds that are going on here. Be proactive with this and settle matters quickly to be reconciled with one another. Boy, if it were only that easy, right? Martin Luther King Jr. famously put it like this. He said, it's appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. I think he's right. And of course, we know this is not just racial tensions that need healing, healing today. Like there's relational tension all around the world. I mean, you go online, and I think I found the exact same article in 20 different publications that were all saying the exact same thing. America is more divided today than at any time since the Civil War. And of course, we know what, what's happening. Like, we're all blaming each other. The left is blaming the right. The right's blaming the left. We're all blaming the political leaders who are in their Twitter accounts. And, you know, I mean, we're blaming the media. The media is doing, not, not doing their thing. It's the church's fault. The church isn't speaking up. There's brokenness inside the church. And we're blaming social media. I was reading one article this past week that was just talking about these trends that social media teaches us, and they were talking about how social media shows us that people are naturally drawn to extremes. Like, we're not, we're not drawn to peace. We like extremes. We like the articles that are going to incite our emotions. And, and social media, like, we love extreme things. If you want to develop a following of a million different people, then you can't just post, if you're a foodie, you can't post the burger from date night on Friday night. Like, you got to post a picture of the burger that's like 20 miles high, 15 pounds of bacon, all kinds of cheese, like, like, like that no one in their right mind can actually eat and actually survive, right? Like, that's the picture that's going to get all the likes. It's the extreme versions of the reality. It's not just a piece of pizza. It's an entire piece of pizza cake right there. And that's going to get the, the things. And the point is that, that we are a people that are drawn to extremes. We like it when our emotions are incited. It does not lend itself to very peace-filled relationships, Pew Research was talking about how American beliefs have become more and more partisan in recent years, how language has become more crude, how the church has become more and more divided from within, and how marriage rates continue to plummet while divorce rates continue to be sky high. In other words, church, the trend that's going on now is that the younger generation is coming up and they're looking around and they're kind of going, yeah, I don't really want to be married. And they're looking around and they're the reason they're making that decision is because they're looking at their parents and their grandparents and they're looking at their neighbors and, and TV and things of that nature. And they're kind of going, yeah, I don't have very much confidence that if I do get married, that my marriage is actually going to last. And if it did last, it's not likely that I'll actually be happy in the end. And they're not that wrong, are they? I mean, the stats are actually saying that that, that, that is exactly what takes place. I mean, somewhere around 50% of all marriages still will end in divorce. I mean, the stats say that of those who do stay together, less than half of those can actually admit to being happily married at that point in time. I mean, the reality is, church, that like, we're great at falling in love. Like, we've mastered that. We're great at falling in love, and we're not so great at staying in love. Right? We're great at conflict. We're terrible at resolving conflict. Like, it's the person that was in my class that asked the question of the professor, Prof, how long do I need to stick around in this, in this argument with my spouse before I finally tell her to submit to me? slapped him at seminary. I guess the lady that was talking about reconciliation was like, yeah, I want to reconcile with my friend, but, and I'm trying to reconcile with my friend. Like, yeah, I care about that person a whole lot, but here's the deal. Like, I saw him at church that day, and, and I was about to go make things right, and it, it just looked like she really didn't want to talk to me. I tried. Like, I tried. I really tried hard. I wanted to be reconciled. I'm like going, I'm like, that's not trying. You, you get that, right? Like, that's not trying. Having fuzzy feelings inside of you like, that's not trying, right? It, it, it's, the it's the married couple that refuses to talk about real things in their marriage in order to keep the peace. And so they're, 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 they're existing under the same roof, but they're on opposite sides of the room. And they're talking about superficial things that have no depth or substance because they don't want to deal with the hard realities that are going on inside their heart. It's the parents 
who are watching their children run from the faith, and they're watching their children cut themselves, and they're watching their children just wallow in depression and fear and anxiety and refuse to go into the room and to have that tough conversation and say, I want to know what's happening inside. I want to know. I want to know like this. I know that you hate me, and we need to talk about why, where that's coming from. Church, like we're great at conflict, and we're not very good at reconciling the whole thing. And what Jesus is saying is to settle matters quickly. Like more important to me than anything else that you're doing, more important than your church attendance, than the way that you sang that song, than the laps that you're doing in the room while you're doing it, than the amount of money that you gave in the tithing plate, is your ability to go back home and be reconciled with the people that you're called to love. Settle matters quickly. Go and be reconciled with those people. I want to talk for a little bit about actually what that, ta- what that looks like. I found myself in studies kind of going, this is going to be a, a terrible end if I don't actually get real practical things about what reconciliation looks like. So I want to talk about what has to happen for reconciliation to take place. Reconciliation being the reunion of two broken people in a relationship once again. And I want to talk about it in terms of this. What has to happen for reconciliation to take place in most circumstances? And the reason that I'm going to say most cases is because in some extreme cases, church, you need to hear me on this, the best thing that you can do is walk away. In some extreme cases, the best thing that you can do is walk away. I mean, the New Testament is clear about this. That there's a time and a place to establish boundaries in toxic relationships. There's a time and a place you may need to walk away altogether in toxic relationships. If you're in an abusive relationship, get out. This is not a conversation that your partner who's abusing you can use in order to keep you in that relationship, in order to keep you, in, in order to keep abusing you day after day after day. Like this isn't something that he can use or she can use in order to guilt you into sticking around so that you can be abused even more. You need to hear that your abuser has broken the covenant of marriage. They've refused to love you. They've refused to protect you. Get out. We will help you get out. We will help you get safe. If you need a church, you need a community, you need people to help you get out and get safe. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about reconciliation right here. Verse 32, Jesus is going to give us an out clause in some marriage relationships in the cases where there's sexual immorality and sexual immorality has taken place. He's not saying that you should leave at that moment. He's not saying that you have to leave at that moment. He's saying in the case of the people who have fought and have tried to reconcile where sexual immorality is right then and there, there may come a time and a place where it's okay for you to let go and you can be free. And you need to hear me that I've had these conversations with people inside of our church. I've sat there with men, I've sat there with women who have prayed for their wandering spouse to come home and to be faithful once again. They've waited, they've been patient. They've waited for years. In some cases, they've waited 15 years. And they have prayed and they have labored and they have cried and cried for 15 years. And you need to hear you can be free. It's not what we're talking about with this. We're talking about two healthy people that want to be reconciled in a relationship again and have the capacity to actually do that. In those cases, the first thing that has to be there is humility. That's number one. It sounds kind of simple to say this. I'm going to put this under the category of the offender and the offended, but the first thing that has to be there is humility. But I think you're going to understand this, but like when you're in the context of this conflict and, and maybe you're in an argument with someone that you care about or that you love, like it's, it's not immediately going to be evident. It, what's going to take place is that the person who's been offended, you're going to start arguing and things like that. And then all of a sudden you may be saying things or you may be doing things that continue to escalate a situation. And neither one of you in the heat of the moment is going to think that you're wrong. Right? Humility is going to be required. You remember what I talked about a little while ago? What does it feel like when you're wrong? It feels like you're right. Right? Like that's what it feels like, right? Like in the middle of that time, it could be your loved one, it could be your family, anybody out there that you care about, you want to reconcile with. In the moment that you're wrong, it always feels like you're right. I love the way that the psalmist is going to say that. He's going to say it like this. Psalm 25, 9. He guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. Listen to that again. He guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. In other words, he's not guiding the proud. The proud doesn't believe they need a guide. The proud doesn't think that a counselor can help them. 
The proud doesn't think that a community group can actually help them. A proud doesn't think that they need to be honest about the things that are taking place or that they actually need help. The proud thinks to themselves, I've got this. The proud thinks to themselves, uh, I'm fine. And then there's nothing actually wrong or that the thing that is wrong is really my partner and not me. That's how the proud thinks. It feels like you're right when you're always in the wrong. I can't tell you the number of times that I either wished I would have stepped away and prayed for a little humility or the few times that I've actually done it right and kind of stepped away and actually said, God, I need you to produce a little bit of humility in me. In the middle of this conflict, uh, you never think that, that you're the one that's in the wrong. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've kind of probably more often than not looked back and said, man, we could have taken a break at that time. I, I wish I would have asked for a few minutes and when I'm talking about a break, I'm not talking about, hey, give me the week or give me the day or give me months or give me years so that I can be passive and hope that time heals. I'm not talking about that kind of junk, right? I'm talking about, hey, I need a few minutes so that I can step away from the situation and I can actually pray about what's taking place to see if God may humble me and lower me to a place where we might actually be able to reconcile what's broken and, and taking place right here. And what's typically going to happen is if you're in the heat of the moment, you may say, hey, uh, time out. I need a few minutes. I'm going to go away. I'm going to pray. If, if, if it's already been broken and you've got this separation there, like you can get away and you can go before the Lord and you can say, Lord, you know what's happening. Like crazy town just happened. World War Eight has just happened in our home. And, and, and I need you to come and I need you to humble my heart. Because you can just be honest with him. You can just say, I need you to come because my heart is hard. Like I don't think I did anything wrong. Would you just lower me? And would you speak truth to me right now? And then you just wait. And you don't rush it. And you try to discern between the voice in your head that's telling you, you're fine, and the voice of the Holy Spirit that's saying, you know what, your tone was really, really off. Or he's absolutely right about the things that he said, or she's absolutely right about the things that she's saying there. And what takes place is the Holy Spirit is going to like, he's going to start evening out the blood in your body. It's going to all move from your head, right? And it's going to slowly settle down there. And he's going to provide a little bit more peace. And all of a sudden your heart rate's going to go from like 160 down to whatever's healthy. <laughs> and you're going to be able to come back to that conversation in a way that actually might lend itself to reconciliation rather than escalating the situation and creating more destruction in the path. Humility. Every one of us need it. None of us have it at the very beginning of it. And so you may need to step away and say, God, give me what I don't have. I need you. I need to be able to listen and I need to be able to learn. Second thing you've got to do is you've got to be able to listen to understand. Right? So I want you to hear what I, what I didn't say. I didn't say listen to win. And I didn't say listen in order to crush. I didn't say listen in order to defeat and, and, and to know how to win this fight. Right? You know what I'm saying? Who are my verbal people in here? I, 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 I know these. You don't have to raise hands and confess or anything, Jackson. But, um, <laughs> but like, you know who you are. You know that you're the kind of personality. Like, you're great with your words. Like, you could be guilty as all get out, and somehow you're going to win that argument. Like, you know how to crush people with your words. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know how to win. I'm saying, like, husbands and wives. Like, <laughs> you, you, you know, right? It's all of us. You know who you are. Like, you're awesome with your words. You know how to get your way. You always win. Right, and there's a way you got to be able to come back after you stepped away and said, Lord, I want to understand this thing. You come back to the conversation, you say, okay, I want to understand what's taking place. So babe, here, I love Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool seems right, but the wise listen to advice. The way of a fool seems right. You know how it feels when you're wrong. It feels like you're right. The way of a fool seems right, but the wise listen to advice. And so you come back from that time of saying, Lord, would you produce a humility in me, which I don't clearly have right now. And you come back to that conversation and you're going to go on, okay, I still don't have conviction. I still don't know what's going on. I'm still lost in this whole thing. Babe, here's the reality. I love you. Son, daughter, I love you. Mom, dad, I love you. Coworker, I care about you. And I want this relationship to be reconciled. Clearly, we are not seeing eye to eye. Will you help me understand a little bit more where you're coming from? Because the reality is like, I don't see things your way, but I want to. I want to understand what's really happening. Church, can you imagine how healing that would be if you heard that from the, your, the person you love? Like, parents, like kids, if there were kids in here, like they're gone in the house, first service, second service. Like, can you imagine what that would be like if a parent said that to you? I actually want to understand what your 16-year-old mind is thinking. Wow. 
Can you imagine like if you came back and you'd said that to your parents, like I actually want to understand why we're so far away and I want to listen this time. One of our, so the flip side of this whole thing is that um, for that to take place, the person who's offended has actually also got to uh, be able to clearly communicate the heart of the problem, right? Isn't that, that's that that's next step. You've also got to be able to communicate clearly what the real problem is. I want to understand, but for understanding to take place, like that other person's got to come in and be able to clearly articulate what's actually going on and what's really wrong with the whole thing. Uh, one of our staff values around here that we talk about all the time with all of our staff, we teach and train and all this stuff, but we talk about it like this. We say, we believe the best in one another. And when it feels like we can't anymore, we pursue reconciliation and we graciously give offenders an opportunity to be restored. That's what we do. We believe the best about each other. Like, I believe that you're awesome. I believe that your motivations are great. Like, I believe that you're a qualified minister of God. I believe that you're all these great things. But when it feels like I can't believe the best in you anymore because of the circumstance or whatever's taken place, we graciously give offenders the opportunity to be restored. In other words, it means I'm not going to sit on it in passivity. I'm not going to stir in my emotions and make up in my mind what was probably taking place over there. I'm not going to assign all this guilt, which I don't really know what's going on over here. I'm going to graciously give you an opportunity to be restored. And so I'm going to go to you and I'm going to talk with you about what's really going on. And I'm going to use language that's not shame language. I'm going to use guilt language. You remember the difference between these things? Shame is the thing that says I've done, I am something wrong. Guilt is the thing that says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. So I'm going to try not to say things like, you always, you never, you're a terrible mom, you're a terrible husband, you're a terrible son, you're a terrible parent, you're a terrible boss, you always screw this up, this, that, and the other, that's shame language right there. We're going to talk, and we're going to be very direct, and we're going to communicate in such a way that that person's going to understand what's actually taking place. I'll never forget a number of years ago, one of our good friends was uh, working for a company in town, and it was a great company, small company, but the owner was a godly man, uh, loved the Lord as God uh, big time, and had a great relationship with his different employees. And anyway, she comes home around August or September and says, hey, I'm pregnant with the firstborn, and so um, my last day is going to be December. We'll need to do that, and let's help create this kind of exit strategy, that kind of a deal. And so they agree to it. December is going to be the last time, and and so uh, somewhere around October, they're bringing in their replacements and things like that. They hire a person. That person comes in and the boss decides, okay, now that I've got this person in this elevated position, we're going to take hours away from her and we're going to reduce her pay in order to make this whole thing take place. So pregnant girl over here has just been essentially demoted and almost fired as she's kind of been faithful to wait until the very end. By the way, that's illegal and a horrible practice, Right. And so naturally, this pregnant lady, friend of ours, is very, very upset about the entire thing. She was, he was a good friend, right? There was supposed to be trust. He was supposed to love the Lord and all these different kinds of things. And, and she's just like, I, our, like, everything is just messed up about this thing. And she's stirring. And so all of a sudden, the exit strategy begins to change. Maybe I need to go to Facebook and post all about this. Maybe I know what I'm going to do that last day. I'm going to go throw all these things, and I'm going to put them in his place. I'm going to have this awesome exit from the company, and everybody's going to know what a turd he is, Right? And so that's kind of the whole plan. And so finally towards the end, it comes in December and she has a change of heart and she's like, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna go to this guy and I'm gonna talk with him. And she goes into his office and she just says, hey, look, you need to know how deeply I've been wounded in the past couple months. You need to know like that this happened and that this happened. And when you said this, like this genuinely hurt, this really, really hurt. And I've been mourning this whole thing. Church, you wanna know how he responded that day? The grown man broke down into tears. He was weeping over the pain that he inflicted on that woman and her family. I cannot believe that I was so stupid and so blind to the things that I was doing. How could I do that? Oh my gosh, not only is that illegal, I cannot believe that I crushed your family and crushed your spirit and demeaned you like I did. Like the man was just weeping. And you know how healing that is when someone comes and they, they like own the fullness of what they did? Like they were able to hug, they were able to pray together. Like that relationship was still reconciled to this day. Church, like that's what I'm talking about. Like it is an absolute gift if you are willing to go to the person who has offended you and clearly communicate what's actually taking place rather than playing games, rather than saying you should just know, rather than assuming, rather than hoping and praying that time will heal all wounds. It is an absolute gift if you are willing to go to that person and clearly communicate what's actually taking place. I'll tell you this around the church, there have been a number of you who have done that with me. 
You know how easy it is to make up your mind about what's happening in Big Brother Church and whatever, things like that. And, you know, and I, I, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for the conversations I've had with a number of people that have come in and said, yeah, that rubbed me the wrong way. I feel like you're doing this, this, that, and the other. And we had an opportunity to sit face to face and explain or clearly communicate what's going on, ask for forgiveness in some cases, and reconcile a broken relationship when you could have just taken off and taken, go, gone to a different church down the street. It is a gift when you offer that to someone else and say, hey, I believe the best in you, but it feels like I can't right now. I care about you and want this thing to be restored. And so can we talk about what's really going on? Number three and four, I'm just gonna group together because there's a lot of overlap here, but number three is taking responsibility for everything that you possibly can, even if it's 5% or 10% or 20% or you probably shouldn't be putting percentage qualifications out there when you're saying it. I'm 5% sorry. I'm, uh, that doesn't really work very well, right? But you've got to take responsibility for some of the things that have taken place. And what takes place is the argument escalates. And so it's never, it's typically not the case where one person's 100% at fault. There's typically the case somewhere in this whole thing where you're kind of going, you know what? I was right in the beginning and I got really, really wrong in the middle. And you need to be able to come back and take full responsibility for those things. Number four is you got to be able to express genuine sorrow. In other words, the whole, yeah, I'm sorry you were offended apology. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh, I'm sorry you're so sensitive and uh, you didn't understand the awesome things that I had to say and how truthful I always am and I'm sorry that you prefer opinions rather than truth. All right, that's not a real apology. Can we just be on the same page about that? Like we will win if our church believes that, right? Like it's not a real apology. There's not a real, that's, that's not a real apology. Church, they, like, there's an enormous difference between coming in and being like, I'm sorry that you were offended. I said I'm sorry, gosh, gosh, I said I'm sorry. Like there's an enormous difference between that and, wow, you're right. I didn't see it at first, and you're right. Like I was completely wrong. I've abused you for a really long time with my words. And it's not just yesterday. I've been lazy. I've been this. I've been this and that and the other. God, it grieves me. I'm so sorry. an enormous difference between those two. One is going to end a conversation and create a temporary peace where you're avoiding the real conflict. The other is going to actually reconcile what's actually been broken. You want to know why so many relationships are falling apart today and never getting back together again? It's because too many of us are incapable or unwilling to say the two and a half most powerful words in the English language. I'm sorry. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if our political leaders actually said that? Like, do you think there would be so much racial tension? Can you imagine if the church got really, really good at saying those words, I'm sorry for the hurt that we caused? We're normal people. We screw up. We don't always get it right, and people say stupid things in parking lots. I'm deeply sorry for the hurt that you've experienced. Church, there's nothing more powerful and healing that you can say than those two words. Like James is going to say, confess your sin to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. In other words, it's not just healing for the other person. Like There's healing that takes place inside of you when you're able to say those words and mean it. You need that. It's like you need a monkey off your back or this burden to be relieved. Like you need that. You need to know that you're loved by someone else even when you screw up. Proverbs is say people who conceal their sin, they won't prosper. You're hiding your stuff. You're not gonna win. You're hiding your stuff. You don't wanna tell your re-engaged class like that is not the place, that is not the way to victory. If you confess your sin and you turn from it, you will receive mercy. It's what we do, church. We've been recipients of an incredible mercy that the world never understands. Why can't we live that out? Is it because we don't want to come across weak? I mean, is that really the thing? Like, like apologies are for weak people? I got news for you, church. Like the, the people that you're in conflict with, they already know you're weak. 
Like, it's not a mystery. They know it. You're the only one who doesn't. Right? Like, they are well aware of your weakness. Can I just tell you, like, for me, the, the, the hardest thing for me, uh, I, I would always wonder this. I'm like, Lord, why in the world did it take me so long to apologize? It's because I held on to this false notion that I should be the perfect husband. That's what it was for me. Like, I would sit there and I'd evaluate later on by myself. I'm like, God, that took a long time. What was that? Like, I actually believed that I should be this perfect husband. I got, and I got news for you. She figured out I wasn't day one. Right? I mean, I know I look like, but right? But like, like, she knew I wasn't day one. And so maybe we need to let go of perfection and let go of just good and, and being reconcilers and acknowledging the fact that, you know what, I hit my tee shot into the woods, but I still got to hit a next shot. I'm there in the woods and there's trees all around, but you know what, I got to get out of these woods from where I am. And I recognize that, you know what, it's not weak to say I'm sorry, it's strength coming and saying, you know what, I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order for this relationship to be reconciled because when I stood on that platform that day before friends and family and I said, I was gonna love you for better or for worse in sickness and in health, no matter what comes our way, I actually meant it. So even if that means that I need to go and pray for a little bit of humility in this moment, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to lower myself. I'm willing to say those words and mean it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Fifth is asking for and giving forgiveness. I think this might be the hardest part because forgiveness is painful. It always is. I love the way Tim Keller said it. He says, mercy and forgiveness must be free and undeserved for the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to deserve it, it's not mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost of the one who's granting the forgiveness. But it's what you're doing, right? And it's good to understand when you're asking someone to forgive you, what you're doing is you're asking them to not inflict the pain upon you that you inflicted upon them. Right? It's what we're doing. Will you forgive me? Will you let go of your right to get revenge? Will you let go of the bitterness in your heart? Would you let go of this brokenness that's right here? Like, would you just let go of it that we could be forgiven and reconciled once again? Major difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. Reconciliation is the reunion of a broken relationship between two people. It takes two people to tango. You cannot reconcile if only one person is interested. Forgiveness is solitary. It is a conscious decision to let go of bitterness and to let go of seeking revenge and to start trusting in the Lord for peace instead. I was reading this article this past week about Dylan Roof and the church shooting in the summer of 2015. Ah. Do you guys remember this story? It was June 17, 2015. Dylan Roof was 21 years old, white man. Casually walked into an African-American church called Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He walked in there for a prayer meeting and a Bible study one night. For the first hour of that night, he hung out with the people, engaged in the Bible study, joined them in prayer. About an hour into it, he opened up fire on the entire gathering. He stood up, he brandished a handgun, and the article says, uttering racist epithets, he commenced firing. At one point during the attack, he shouted, y'all want something to pray about? I'll give you something to pray about. At the end of the rampage, nine people were dead, including the 42-year-old senior pastor of the church, 87-year-old parishioner, 26-year-old man who died trying to dissuade the shooter from his awful mission. A little later on, under police interrogation, the dude blatantly admitted to killing everybody and explained that it was his purpose to create a race war in America. In a journal entry made some weeks after the murders, Roof wrote this. He said, I would like to make it crystal clear that I do not regret anything that I've done. I'm not sorry at all. I haven't shed one, one tear for the innocent people that I killed. Church, how in the world do you forgive a Dylan Roof? It's exactly what took place, though. I mean, a few weeks later, it's, it's time for his day in court, and like the church showed up to court that day, including the four surviving victims, including the families of the people who were actually killed. The daughter of a murdered churchgoer said this. She said, I'll never be able to hold my mom again, but I choose today to forgive you. The relative of another victim insisted, we've got no room for hate in this room. So we're choosing to forgive you today and may God have mercy on your soul. A spokesperson for the church explained it, their ability to forgive like this. She wrote, 
Our forgiveness isn't a matter of emotion or the summoning of positive feelings about Dylan. Rest assured, we don't have very many of those. All we have is a conscious act of love and a decision to let it go that reflects the kind of forgiveness that we have first received from our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you forgive a Dylan Roof? That's it. That's what it is. It's a conscious decision that you make in order to trust the Lord for peace and to be able to let go of revenge and to let go of bitterness and to let go of the things that are crippling you from the inside out. It's a conscious decision that you make. You know how healing that is to live in that kind of a disposition on a daily basis? Like I'll never forget years ago, I went, my brother and I we were probably in junior high and my, my dad had gotten in this habit of sleeping out on the couch. He was a big man and he snored a whole lot. And anyway, so he was snoring a ton and uh, he was always out on the couch. And we come down to breakfast one morning and my brother's just in tears and he's like, mom and dad, are you guys getting divorced? Why is dad always out on the couch? And, and he's freaking out. He's just like, he's always in trouble. They're getting divorced and this whole thing. And I'll never forget the conversation that my mom and dad had with us that day. It was my brother and I were sitting at the kitchen table and they walked in and they go, you guys need to hear us loud and clear. Like divorce is not a part of our language. Divorce is not a part of our language. We made a decision a long time ago that no matter what comes our way, even if there's difficulties and whatever may come our way, we made a decision a long time ago that we're gonna be people that forgive one another. Church, you know how healing that is to live in with that kind of a disposition? And to have parents that kind of think like that or to be in a relationship where, where, that's the, where that's the standard right there. And they're not saying that there's no exceptions, that dad couldn't do something insanely stupid that would break the entire thing, but they're saying that that's not the thing that we're thinking about. The thing that we're thinking about is our natural disposition as believers in Jesus Christ is to receive the grace, mercy, forgiveness, and healing that God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ, and to be distributors of that forgiveness to the people that we're in relationship around us every single day. Man, it is healing. The last one is to be able to make reparations if necessary, is how I put it right there. Reparations are about repaying what is owed and doing whatever it takes beyond words in order to rebuild trust and love. You're going to see this in Deuteronomy 5, 7. God tells Moses what needs to be done for people who've been wronged, and he says they must confess their sin, make full restitution for what they've done, adding an additional 20% and returning it to the person who's been wronged. Luke chapter 19, 8, you're going to see this in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was a tax collector. He was a very corrupt individual, robbed a lot of people. He had dinner with Jesus one night. After having dinner with Jesus, he repents of everything. And, and he says, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor. And to those who I've cheated with taxes, I'm going to give back four times as much. That's what reparations are. Church, what, this, what reparations communicates is that some wounds take time to heal. Like some wounds take time to heal. Like for some people, the question is not, are you, do you have the capacity to say the words, I forgive you? Like for some people, the question is like, do I actually believe that you mean it? Like for some situations, like the question is not, can you go through the scenario and tell me everything that you think that I need to hear? The question is like, do you, do you actually mean it? Because history has proven that you've been a lifetime, you've been a manipulator forever. Like you've been full of anger forever. Your MO is to rip things apart and you're a consummate cheater and all of these different kinds of things. And so you can say some words over here, but the, the bottom line is like, I don't actually believe you. Because anyone can say, I love you and I'm committed to you in one day. The question is, are you still loving them and committed to them a year from now and 20 years from now and 40 years from now? Are you still being faithful to that person at that point in time? And so here it is, church, like if that's you and somehow by God's grace, you've been given another opportunity to reconcile one more time with that person, then reparations may need to be a part of your strategy. There's a great example of this in the movie, um, Forgive me, the movie Fireproof. You guys seen this movie Fireproof? Yeah, one of these consummate Christian films and I think Kirk Cameron was up for an Oscar in that, I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm kidding. It's one of these uh, um, excellent movie, uh, definitely cheesy acting and a little bit corny in some different places like that. I absolutely love the message of the movie. There's a great example of this in this entire movie. It's what the whole movie's about, essentially. But Kirk Cameron's character is a fireman. And ironically enough, he's able to save other people from burning buildings, and he's not able to save his own marriage from the one that's burning in front of his eyes, right? That's the great metaphor of this. We're so good at those metaphors. Um, and so that's the storyline, right? It's this, it's this couple, Kirk and his wife. Their marriage is ruined. Like they, they, they haven't been able to see eye to eye. He's heavily addicted to pornography. He's angry at home all the time. 
And of course, like it's, it's, it's playing out in the way that he treats his wife. And so naturally she's disconnected a little bit more and, and she's not wanting to give like he thinks that he deserves to be receiving things from her and stuff. And so they're just constantly at odds and they're drifting further and further and further away. And, and they're kind of on the verge of divorce. And finally, Kurt goes away one day and he has this conversation with his dad. And dad essentially challenges him to this 40-day challenge called the love dare. And the love dare is essentially 40 consecutive days of intentionally showing your spouse that you love them no matter how they choose to respond, which is exactly why I love the movie. It is 40 consecutive days of saying, you know what? Everything's set aside. I'm going to choose to love you in these intentional ways, regardless of how you respond to me in that moment. I'm going to see it through for 40 consecutive days and see what takes place. And so, of course, he's skeptical of the entire thing, and he doesn't think that their relationship can be healed. He doesn't think it's going to work. He doesn't even think that he's got any problems, right? We, none of us do it in the middle of that time. Nevertheless, he wants to appease his dad, so he says, fine, dad, I'll take the love dare and I'll do it. So day one, it's all about love is patient. And of course, the challenge is to go and to be with your spouse and to refuse to say anything negative or harmful to that other person, which is a really, really low bar, right? Nevertheless, if you're kind of in that place, then that's where you need to start. And it's a toxic relationship and it's very tough and, and he tries to be really, really nice and she makes fun of him about it and it hurts a little bit and nevertheless, the next day comes and it's about intentional acts of kindness and so he goes and he does something intentionally to try to love her and of course, it's rejected again because she's kind of looking at him she's like, who in the world are you? Like, where in the world have you been our entire marriage? Like, what are you trying to do right now? It's a little late for that, don't you think? And that's kind of the attitude that continues to play out over and over and over again. Day three, day four, day five, roses, gifts, acts of service, uh, words of affirmation, all these different kinds of things. It keeps going over and over and over again. Every time he keeps getting rebuffed. Meanwhile, she starts developing this emotional relationship at work with this other man. She, they're drifting further and further apart. He's trying to hold on a little bit more. Somewhere around like day 25, they finally start to see a little bit of a breakthrough. She starts looking at all these different kinds of things and she's kind of going, dude, you're still after this? Like maybe, maybe you actually mean that you love me. Day, it's not perfect then. Day 26 is still tough. And they try to have a date. They try to communicate again and it's just awkward and weird and, and there's more rejection there and stuff. And it's just, but he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going and you know how it all ends. Day 39, day 40, something like that. Finally, they break down and She's weeping and she's mourning and she's repenting of her emotional affair and he's repenting of these different things that he's been a part of and God has used that time to mend and repair and reconcile this relationship that by all human standards would have seemed like it was impossible to mend together. Church, that's what we're willing to do for the people that we love. It's just what we do for the people that we're called to love. It's reparations. You, you do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. Because sometimes, church, like the question isn't, can you say that you love me? Sometimes the question is, like, do you actually mean it? Can I see it? Are you willing to go the distance? Are you willing to kind of say, you know what, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for this relationship to be repaired? Church, it's what we do for the people that we're called to love. And hear me on this, church. Like, for the Christian there is nothing that reflects the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ quite like your ability to be reconciled with the people that you're called to love. It's what he's done for us. While we were lost, while we were dead in our sins, while we were in the middle of our rebellion, God in his infinite love for us sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the life we could not live and die the death we were supposed to die, that we could be reconciled with him. So Jesus is gonna say, Church, I'm pumped you haven't killed people. It's great. But holiness begins long before you ever get to that point. So be a people that check your heart. Check what's going on inside. Because the anger and unforgiveness in your heart, like it, it also carries the capacity to kill the people that you love. So, so settle matters quickly and be reconciled with those people. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me and band you guys can stick there. Church, I want to give you a minute. Would you just, I want you to bring to mind the person, the people that you know that you need to be reconciled with. Would you take a minute, would you pray for the humility that you need to be able to go and take those next steps?
Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you that you haven't left us hopeless. God, when we were unlovable, you still loved us anyway. You moved towards us. And Father, I pray for the person who's in here in a hopeless situation right now. God, that you may give them hope. Father, I pray that both parties would be humble. I pray that they'd be willing to listen to you. Father, I pray, and Lord, I beg you that you would just let someone here ask for help today. I feel like that's what needs to be said. Would you ask for help today? God, would you do what you do so well, God? Would you repair broken, shattered lives, broken and shattered relationships? Father, would you breathe new life into these things, God? And would you get all the praise, glory, and honor that you are due from this entire thing? Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we praise you. We surrender you in all these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Church. Love you guys. I went really long today, so you're dismissed. We won't sing to wrap it up. We'll see you next week.